You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at agonet slash talks. Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult public programs here. And it's a great delight for me this evening to welcome Dr. Stephen Inglis for the first of the five talks on Maharaja Splendors of the Raj. So Dr. Stephen Inglis is adjunct curator of the Maharaja exhibition and curator emeritus at the Canadian Museum of Civilization. And he's going to talk about the ways in which Indian popular culture and tourism have drawn on the culture of the kingdoms, which I find really interesting. As an anthropologist, curator, and lecturer, Dr. Inglis has specialized in South Asian artists and their communities and in Canadian folk art and craft traditions. As chief of the Canadian Centre for Folk Culture Studies in the early 1990s, he built the CMC's outstanding national fine craft collection. From 1998 until 2007, he was Director General Research and Collections. Since 1974, Dr. Inglis has been associated with the Shastri Indo-Canadian Institute, which promotes academic and cultural exchange between India and Canada. Dr. Inglis holds a BA and PhD in Anthropology from the University of British Columbia and an MA in Museology and Indian Art from Calcutta University in India where he studied Indian art and architecture, folk arts and crafts, and ethnography of, of, eth, sorry, ethnography of tribal societies. He also received a certificate in Tamil language and South Indian culture from Madurai Kamaraj University in Madurai, India. So Dr. Stephen Inglis, please come. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jillian, and thank you all for coming this evening. Um, I know it's uh, kind of a dark and stormy night, but uh, it, it's lovely to have a chance to talk a little bit more freely and a little bit more extensively about the exhibition than is possible within the framework of the labels and so forth. I do hope, and I want to say on behalf of uh, my colleagues here at the AGO, that uh, I hope you all have a chance to see the exhibition and spend a little extra time looking at it. It's a wonderful exhibition, and um, the Victoria and Albert Museum did a tremendous job in laying the groundwork for what we were able to do here. And uh, we, all of us who've been associated with the, ex the exhibition are, are very proud of the way it turned out as we see people move through and really absorb of the wonderful objects that are on display and learn something about them. And I'm going to try to put that into a little bit of context, one particular context tonight. So, um, Air India, the overseas airline of the government of India, chose a bowing, smiling, turbaned Maharaja on a flying carpet, no less, as its mascot in the late 1940s. Why did a new democratic government make such a choice for its most modern means of transport when just a few years earlier the nationalist leader and first prime minister Jawaharlal Nehru had castigated the Maharajas as rulers who ki whose kingdoms were very backward 
and many of them still in the feudal age. Perhaps this was part of what historian Barbara Ramasak terms the profound ambivalence of successive Indian governments and historians, both in India and elsewhere, toward the Maharajas. It helps explain why they remain on the margins of the dominant historical narratives about 20th century India. Almost all the images I show you tonight are from the exhibition, so when you go there, you'll be able to see the originals of these wonderful photographs, images, and artifacts. The British colonial officers had, after all, described the Maharajas as faithful military allies and natural leaders, but also as decadent aristocrats. The nationalists cited cited the kings as evidence of an ability to govern and sought their generosity and participation in the freedom struggle, but also described them as playboys and arbitrary overlords. India made them state governors and ambassadors, and they became successful candidates for political office, but were at the same time criticized as remnants of a hierarchical and archaic past. Yet there seems to have been a continuity in state formation in India with Maharajas exercising substantial authority and power in their states throughout British rule and into the modern Indian state. There were almost 600 kingdoms at the time of India's independence. And these kingdoms constituted approximately one-third of the vast territory of India, which then included, of course, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and part of Burma. And so it was a tremendous political uh, exercise to have these, all these hundreds of kingdoms agree to become part of the modern state of India, which they all eventually did. The kind of power these kings wielded is based on ancient Indian uh, concepts of kingship, which include the protection of subjects, the adjudication of disputes between social groups, castes, and clans, patronizing religious institutions, preserving social formations, uh, kind of an overlap between the role of the deity and the king in the concept of darshan, that's the auspiciousness of seeing a, a great being and being seen by that being. Indian kings, for example, in Mysore and Baroda, some of the biggest kingdoms, expanded their traditional patronage to hospitals, schools, the underprivileged universities, and museums. And, of course, their patronage of the arts and their role in the survival of of the arts into the 20th and the 21st century is something that is a very important part of the exhibition. But I'm going to start by just describing a few of the roles that the Maharajas played as politicians. As the British East India shifted from a business venture to a territorial and political power during the 18th century, they sought kings as allies. Although in the decades after 1948, scholars claimed the full integration of these kingdoms into independent India and Pakistan, 
and that this integration ended the political power of the rulers, royal family members continued to play numerous roles in politics. And I'll just give you a few examples. This is Yadavendra Singh of Patiala, uh, who was named a member of the UN Food and Agricultural Organization. He was also ambassador to Italy and to the Netherlands. And the connection between our exhibition and this particular photo is he's wearing Cartier's great Patiala necklace, which is in the show. Uh, a necklace that was assembled by Cartier in 1928 and was the largest commission, part of the largest commission that they ever did in their history. And so this is the last photograph, the last time the necklace was ever seen uh, in its full uh, glory before the Patiala kingdom divided it up and sold it off as their fortunes waned. And uh, it was only in the early 90s that a Cartier employee who was trolling through antique shops in London found the skeleton of this necklace, took it, bought it, took it back to Cartier, and they spent two or three years, I think it was, reassembling it and replacing some of the larger stones, unfortunately, with uh, artificial stones because those great, great diamonds, some of them had been lost. And that's what we were very fortunate to borrow from Cartier for the exhibition upstairs. So you'll see the Patiala necklace there. Man Singh of Jaipur was ambassador to Spain, member of the Raja Sabha. Maharaja Sindhya uh, joined the BJP party in 1957. This is Maharani Gayatri Devi from Udaipur, who held a Congress seat beginning in 1962. <coughs> was a great politician in India, in modern India. And Maharaja Karni Singh of Bikaner was also uh, voted into the lower house. I have a photo here of uh, Madhav Rao Sindhya from Gwalior. He was the Congress Railways Minister under Rajiv Gandhi. And he tragically died in an air crash in 2001. And he might have become the Prime Minister of India. Uh, He was that prominent within the party at the time. Um, And there's many other examples. Uh, The Maharajas of Baroda have elected five members to state legislatures. I wanted to give you a little personal note because this person has been a friend of mine for a long time. This is the Nawab of Rampur, which is a small Muslim kingdom in uh, North India. It was originally an Afghan kingdom. And the Nawab here, who uh, was born in 1960, um, went to Chandigarh University and then took an architecture degree at Columbia. Uh, I guess that would be the right-hand picture. And then on the left, he's in his traditional costume. But his career is an interesting one that shows the direction that some of the Maharajas took in their service to the Indian state. Um, he served as the, uh, on the board of the famous uh, Rampur Library from 1993 to 2002. From 1996, he was an MLA in the Uttar Pradesh State Assembly and was briefly the state minister for uh, minority uh, welfare and for Hajj affairs as a Muslim. 
And since 2003, he's been chairman of the Uttar Pradesh Tourist Development Corporation. So that's uh, Nawab Kazim Ali Khan. Now, I'm going to move uh, to a slightly different role, and that is the role of entrepreneurs. And I'm starting out with some posters, a couple of posters. These are things you may have seen before. You may be familiar with this poster is from 1935 and shows one of the enduring uh, experiences that's linked to India in the minds of tourists. And to some extent, it's become a elite motif for Indian ceremonial activity. That is the elephant uh, procession. Tourism relies on and constantly manufactures representations of space and culture, fantasies about romance, uh, decadence, sexuality, cruelty, the unfathomable, and visions of an unchanging culture, sweeping sand dunes, in India's case, elephant processions, tribal women, elaborate royal palaces, and notions of decadent luxury. As I wrote, read in one place, which was trying to attract tourists, the mystical, the cruel, and the uncanny. So uh, this is a 1964 poster for Swiss Air, and as you see, they've also um, engaged in the elephant Maharaja idea with the woman in front. But this kind of representation, I would say, is... Well, hold on. Uh, Just before I go there, um, there's our little Maharaja again. Air India's Maharaja, who continues throughout the story, and he's riding an elephant in this case. And then, you know, we couldn't we couldn't help it. There's our elephant in the exhibition <laughs> upstairs, um, a wonderful full regalia howda with the headpiece and the blanket. Uh, interestingly enough, we were able to enrich the exhibition with with some loans from Canadian collections. And this one comes from, of all places, the Glenbow Museum in Calgary, who really have the finest example, a much better example than they had at the V&A. And um, this comes from a Punjabi kingdom uh, from the mid-1800s. And even though it's very, very delicate, that's why the howd is hanging from the ceiling rather than touching that blanket, which is very delicate. We were fortunate to bring it for the exhibit. Um, This kind of representation, of course, is not a recent thing. The palaces and the kings of India have for centuries been a focus of um, travel and writing by outsiders. Here's another quote that I read uh, somewhere. Indian tourism is shrouded in antiquity. (laughs) So maybe that's that's the case. In addition, uh, some Europeans, including British officials, had adopted elements of courtly style from the kingdoms of India in their Indian lives, particularly before the political, full political might of British India took over. And the British went on at the height of their imperial rule to adopt many of the ceremonial fashions of the royal courts themselves. Um, 
Here is one of the beautiful processional paintings. This is from the Kingdom of Kota that's in the exhibition. And here is a wonderful painting uh, by an artist by the name of Mackenzie, an American who uh, painted the 1903 uh, Imperial Durbar in Delhi. And as you can see, this is a British event. It's the Viceroy on the first elephant and the representations of the British king and queen in the second elephant. And then Mysore, Hyderabad, and the other great states all represented uh, in the following um, event. I hope you'll have a chance to look at this magnificent painting uh, up in the exhibition. Um, that's the Jama Masjid Mosque behind, as many of you will recognize who know Delhi or visited Delhi. It's still there. And um, along the parapet, however, and I didn't really notice this at first, but when we got a chance to look closely at the painting, are all, almost all uh, European women who were given, I guess, um, the okay to go up on the wall to watch the procession, and you'll notice by their large hats and their parasols, um, they're obviously European women. But it's a, it's a complete and a beautiful representation of uh, this ceremonial life at this period of time. Um, very early on, um, and this is from the 1850s, paintings started to be made for Europeans. This is a phenomenon called company paintings. We have one of the greatest company paintings in existence in the exhibition upstairs. This is a piece from it, the Mysore scroll, and it shows the Maharaja of Mysore um, there on the first elephant, and then hundreds and hundreds of his subjects and various people. And this kind of painting was done on commission mostly for Europeans, in order that they could take something back. This was pre-photography. Uh, take it back to Britain or to other places where Europeans or foreigners came to India uh, in order to show what India was like. But the amount of detail, these were painters that had been quite often patronized by kingdoms before. They'd lost the patronage and they they began to work for new clients, and some of these new clients were Europeans. Um, here's the European of note in this painting, also painted much larger than everyone else, like the Maharaja. This is Mark Cubbon, who was the commissioner of Mysore, and a very uh, sympathetic and a very uh, astute uh, person within the kingdom, who um, is represented there, and he may... Um, have been, or members of his family, or members of his group, may have been the people who originally commissioned this painting, although we don't know. So I just wanted to say one more thing about um, the role of the early Europeans in creating an image of the Maharajas. As you're probably aware, most royal courts had uh, British officers attached to them, uh, both as residents, as they were called, and as commissioners, and there was other titles applied to them depending on the extent to which the British uh, ruled the state and the extent to which they were just collaborators. This is this gentleman here, um, Major General Law on the left, and this is in the 1890s, 
Actually, he spent his summers in um, the Muskokas uh, because his brother lived in Toronto. And um, he was the uh, resident at Jaipur and uh, later on in Alwar. And we have in the exhibit a beautiful gate that was gifted to him by the Maharaja of Jaipur in recognition of his service to the state. And um, this is an example of something by which Europeans and you know remembered those times that they spent in India and the great architectural beauty of these courts. This was actually made in a workshop that was set up by the Maharaja of Jaipur in the 1890s to reproduce uh, the beautiful uh, techniques of Indian woodworkers and to glorify and celebrate the architecture of Jaipur. And so this was an appropriate gift from the Maharaja to uh, Sir Major General Law when he left. This is from the Royal Ontario Museum, who very generously loaned it to us specifically for this exhibition. So there were a number of activities that caught the public's imagination. One of them was, of course, hunting. And um, this struggle between man and nature uh, was a part of both uh, the traditional life of the courts and of the uh, British view of uh, manliness and uh, sportsmanlike activity. This is a wonderful painting, also from Kota, of uh, the Maharaja hunting lions in this case. But the British magazines in the late 1800s um, and the early 20th century were full of scenes like this um, of hunting. Um, and they, they sort of uh, lapped through uh, magazines advertising and newsreels. And you'll see um, one of these newsreels, not about hunting, but about pageantry in the exhibition, the 1911 Durbar newsreel, um, during which the various kings come up and pay homage to the British sovereign. And um, there you'll, you'll see that these were extremely popular back in Europe at the time. And of course, this was one activity that hasn't, thank God, uh, persisted into the present because uh, these beautiful tigers were nearly wiped out and uh, keeping them alive is the work of uh, conservationists and a terrific number of people trying to uh, help the Bengal tiger to survive in a rapidly diminishing habitat. And I must say that the royal families in India have been uh, quite active in this role as conservationists. One element of uh, royal style that did flourish into the present and is still very, very prominent in Indian life is uh, fashion and courtly fashion. Um, kingly and courtly fashion became part of the fancy dress of the Indian elite. And this is a, a beautiful robe that's in the exhibition. And aspects of royal dress became integrated into the dress of most Indians, particularly at marriages and at other uh, special occasions. 
and the role or the impact of royal costume is still ricocheting through uh, Indian fashion, helped along, of course, by film and by other, other uh, elements, but it's definitely part of modern couturier uh, in India and elsewhere, wherever people of South Asian origin live. And the title of my talk really comes from a, a sense that the railways, which became major uh, transportation elements of Indian life, also became an element of, of tourism and a draw to India, particularly recently through the phenomenon of palace on wheels, in which various state governments, Rajasthan, for example, uh, national railway companies have taken cars and either outfitted them as if they were the cars that Maharajas would have rode in or taken actual royal cars and refitted them for tourists at large cost. And uh, maybe some of you have had the opportunity to do that. Um, it's, a, it's a good way of getting tourists around. Um, you can really protect them in there and make sure they're eating the right things and so forth. And uh, it, uh, you can play on the romance of exclusive travel. And um, many Maharajas had uh, their own train cars. Some of them had their own railways. Um, one beautiful example that I saw a few years ago, I was in Baroda, and I saw the train, the little train, miniature train that took the children of the Varoda royal family from their house out to their school. It was only about a mile and a, a mile, it, all in the palace grounds. But it was a perfect replica of the Flying Scotsman, a Scottish train, done in one to ten size or whatever. And these little kids came out every morning and got in their little train, and the engineer took them to school and then picked them up at the end and brought them back. I guess one of the most spectacular and probably most prominent features of royal courts that's, uh, that's transitioned into the modern world and into tourism is, are the palaces. This is a painting from our exhibition, but there's many paintings in the exhibition of palaces and pleasure uh, going on in these palaces. India was portrayed as a land populated as I said before, by monsters, magicians, and maharajas. It, I'm reading from a text. Its rulers were immeasurably powerful potentates, enthroned in vast citadels, surrounded by every conceivable luxury. But Indian courts were not accessible to the gaze of foreign observers, and the royal families continued to be mysterious and alluring. Indeed, this exotic appeal of Indian palaces has proved to be long-lasting. It survived the colonial experience and exists today in the royal residences as fortified citadels, complete with massive walls and defensive gateways, as well as armories, barracks, and stables, and all the cultural richness developed over centuries still lies here preserved in these palaces. So, this is an example this is the Jai Vilas Palace in uh, Baroda. And here on the right-hand side is where the uh, Baroda royal family still live. In the central part of this building is a museum. 
In the left side is a great hall where musical concerts and so forth are held. And it's just one example of so many examples where these great buildings were turned into, uh, were refitted and, uh, you know, a, a role uh, sought for them in uh, modern India. Um, at first, after independence, the politicians in Delhi weren't particularly enthusiastic about developing tourism, and particularly in Rajasthan, where they looked at the kings as hostile and backward-looking aristocrats. That's a term I took from the period. Um, but fairly soon, uh, things started to open up. Heavy investment in the tourist industry, partly because of democratic reform, land distribution, the loss of the privy purses when the Maharajas lost their support from the state of India in 1971, uh, forced royal families to salvage their lives, maintain their properties if they could, and retain some measure of their former stature in India's social and political environments. And so one way they did this is by becoming part of the tourist industry. In 1954, Karen Singh of Jammu and Kashmir leased his palace in Srinagar to the Oberoi group. Jaipur's Rambag Palace, uh, which remains one of the leading royal hotels in India, was uh, converted in 1958. And Udaipur's famous Lake Palace uh, in the early 60s. Uh, which some of you may have seen. If you haven't, you can look at it in James Bond, Octopussy, with Roger Moore, uh, who swings through there several times um, during the movie. And uh, here's the city palace in Udaipur, another one that's been partly converted into a hotel. We are informed that in Udaipur, with its lakes, it's known as the Venice of the East, these are the kinds of epithets that begin to swirl around tourist places, and even the Kashmir of Rajasthan. Uh, that's like calling Central Park the Yellowstone of New York. But there it is. Uh, these um, areas, and particularly the cities in Rajasthan, often have created tourist zones where parts of the city can be uh, beautified in some ways and kind of uh, controlled uh, for the tourist uh, view. Um, and one of these is in Udaipur, where they have what they call now the city within a city uh, concept. But it's not only for foreigners. And I think this is a very important part of the image of the Maharajas that I'm trying to uh, construct here. Um, in 1982, there were 57,000 foreign tourists who visited Udaipur. The same year, over 663,000 Indians visited Udaipur. So part of this allure, part of this marketing, and part of this transformation uh, is internal as well as external. And as we all know, India has uh, progressively more people that are traveling within their own country and taking advantage of uh, the tourist uh, offerings. Now, you don't always want to have what the palace was like all the time. For example, in the bathroom. So uh, this is an example looking out at the Aravalli Hills from one of these reconverted palaces in Udaipur where they've redone uh, certain parts of the rooms to be more um, 
international, if you like. Looks pretty nice, I would say. Um, so, now we move just to an example of someone who's been wildly successful in this world and just take a look a little bit at what he's done. This is Maharaja uh, Gaj Singh II of Jodhpur, the Marwar King. And um, he's inherited a pedigree, uh, repackaged his image as the Maharaja in light of his personal career as a diplomat, a social worker, champion of arts and crafts. And like other former royals around the world, he's reconstructed the symbols and meanings associated with royalty. And I'd just like to say, before he drives away, I hope he's going to draw his turban up a little bit because it looks like what, might, you know, what happened to uh, you know, Sarah Bernhardt or uh, I think Lawrence of Arabia also died with his scarf around his... He got caught in his motorcycle or something. Anyway, there, there he is, Gaj Singh II. And what I wanted to say about this is prior to 1947, hospitality and entertainment were a very important diplomatic instrument of royal statecraft. And you'll see that as you go through the Maharaja exhibit because there's so many paintings showing meetings, showing guests arriving. These are all explained in terms of the various pacts and alliances and gift-giving and so forth that were part of royal life. But now these have been repackaged to a large extent, and Gaj Singh is part of this, as traditional hospitality to guests. And, you know, this might have not, this was not traditional hospitality. <laughs> this was the last king of Mewar submitting to the Mughals. So he was the last holdout of the Rajasthani kings. He's basically bowing down to Kuram, who became Shah Jahan, and giving up his kingdom because he knows that all is lost. His father's been killed, and the Mughals are besieging his city. And so, you know, this, this isn't a happy tale, but it can all be all of these events and these meetings and these beautiful places where uh, meetings were held can be repurposed and repackaged as traditional hospitality for tourists as the honored guests. Domestic hospitality was from a traditional set of hospitality exchanges um, with the Maharaja, his subjects, with visitors, and as I said, the, they were part of uh, transfer privileges, um, alliances, inspections, durbars in colonial India. And this included royalty to royalty, but also to celebrities and other people. And now these events at which the Maharaja may welcome guests or where, there, where people feel they're being welcomed by a royal presence might involve also, of course, shopping and discotheques as much as these audience rooms. So here's uh, the Maharaja of Jodhpur welcoming a royal guest. It's still going on. These are people who recognize one another, enjoy some of the same kinds of uh, benefits. And, of course, all the rituals aren't quite the same as they used to be. This is a little bit of kind of kissing both cheeks uh, by the look of it. Um, the Duchess of Cornwall. 
And of course, celebrities also play a role. I think this is Elizabeth Hurley uh, visiting with the Maharaja of Jodhpur. Now, some of these um, modern touristic experiences also include other kinds of ceremonies that are rolled into um, the event for the tourist. And this one is a horse gift ceremony, which is still performed in Jodhpur and to which uh, foreign guests might be invited, the Ashwabet ceremony. There's also the royal birthday that's celebrated in many kingdoms, still in India. And the Tuladan, the weighing ceremony, which you'll see images of in the exhibit, where the Maharaja weighs himself in silver in some cases, and then distributes that to the poor or to, uh, to subjects as a part of his charity and generosity. And lastly, in this little, this is a, such a beautiful little painting in the show, one of the exquisite paintings of a woman flying a kite. And so I just put this in because not all these ceremonies actually ever took place, but many of them have been invented for tourists. So now there's the Desert Kite Festival, apparently, in Jodhpur, where there never was a Desert Kite Festival before. And, um, but that's something that tourists can buy into and uh, take part in if they like, along with their camel rides and other kinds of things. So um, I just wanted to say that the experience of opening the exhibit here and hosting uh, the royal family from Rajkot, this is the Yuvraj uh, from Rajkot. They're Takurs, they're, that's their title, of the Jadeja family. They're a Rajput uh, kingdom clan who have a kingdom in Gujarat, and they are the owners, recent owners, of the great Rolls-Royce that's in the show, but it was his grandfather who commissioned the Rolls-Royce. And like so many other stories of the Maharajas and their riches, they commissioned this Rolls-Royce, one of the most beautiful cars in existence. Uh, when, they look, when their fortunes waned, they sold it back to Europe. It, uh, it was in various collections in England and in Germany. It was actually used in royal ceremonies in London at, the, uh, at the, uh, Queen Elizabeth's uh, Golden Jubilee. And then this past summer, the heir to the throne of Rajkot, whose fortunes have grown with Rajkot, which is one of the big industrial cities now of Gujarat, was able to buy it back at auction. And he's taking it from here, from our exhibition, back to India and presenting it to his father on his father's birthday. So, you know... Uh, I, you know, I think that there's a certain um, reconfirmation, if you like, of some of the values and ideas. And it was very interesting to listen to him and his family while he was here. And he was a tremendous museum guide. He was just he stood for hours beside the car, posing for photographs, describing the history. He was just full of information about this car and all the values associated with it that 
link up with his notion of what a royal family should be doing. And uh, so I just put in a few photographs from their history. Um, this is his father uh, dispensing uh, hospitality during a wedding. Um, these are some historical photos of the family. So I'm just covering a few of the bases that I've introduced to you. Here's a royal procession in Rajkot with um, the elephant uh, Hauda. Uh, here's the Yuvraj and the Yuvrani sitting together in their palace. And you see what's on the floor beside them there. <laughs> Those poor old tigers. I don't think there are any tigers left in Gujarat. I'm not sure. Um, the clothing, of course, of uh, both the uh, Raja and his ancestors, particularly, and the palaces. They have three palaces in Rajkot, and typically, I would say typically, because I've heard this before, one they're living in, the second one they want to turn into a hotel, and the third one they want to turn into a museum. So we'll see how that works out. Now, there is one aspect of the uh, experience, in the Indian experience of the Maharajas, which is pretty difficult to shake. And that's got to do with extravagance. So this is an illustration from a very, very widely circulated article um, called, and the title is, India's modern Maharajas flaunting it. And of course, this is the new home of uh, Mukesh Ambani in uh, India's richest man in Mumbai. Pegged at over uh, $1 billion US, uh, described as the world's most expensive private home. Uh, it's like a modern-day castle, or just all so compared to the Palace of Versailles. 27 stories, um, three helipads, nine elevators, a cinema, ballroom, safe room, swimming pool, 50-seat theater, and three floors of parking space in downtown Mumbai. And um, so while... Uh, erstwhile royal families can make certain uh, claims to a legitimate and uh, a historically uh, important role in India. Uh, there's still, of course, a lot of uh, pent-up uh, prejudice against these families for the lifestyle that they lived. And to compare Mukesh Ambani to a Maharaja uh, you know, I mean, I can see why that happened, but uh, I don't think it's necessarily very fair. Uh, he's got nothing to do with royal families. Um, so, we return to our little Maharaja. This, um, by the way, was developed through the J. Walter Thompson Agency in 1946, so before independence, and was designed by uh, Bobby Kuka, and Umesh Rao, two designers from Mumbai. And they not only did the little Maharaja for their Indian traffic, but every place that Air India flew, they developed another Maharaja in the 
clothing of the country. And so here's the little one that they did for Canada when Air India early on flew to Canada. There's the Mounty Maharaja that they developed. So the Maharajas and their states were and remain a significant aspect of the South Asian cultural and economic landscape, which is my argument, and loom large in the public imagination. There's no doubt about that. They played diverse roles as religious and cultural patrons, symbols of an ability to govern, um, imperial politicians in both military and civilian arenas. Their lifestyles and palaces have become an enduring focus for tourist marketing, both within India and abroad, and many have opened their collections as museums and initiated important wildlife and heritage conservation programs. The Maharajas and their courts are a key element in the international identity of India and its history. And hopefully, this exhibition will help us all to learn more about their lives, about their states, and about their subjects. And I just wanted to say that this is the same man. This is the Maharaja Vorcha, which is now in uh, Madhya Pradesh. And there he is in his court in Orcha. And there he is about 15 years later in a photo studio wearing the Europeanized uh, gowns of uh, royalty with the star of the Order of India on his uh, shoulder, which was granted to kings who, uh, who were felt to be supportive of... Uh, national politics at the time. Thank you very much. Now, I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have or hear your comments uh, on anything that you've seen here tonight. And there are a number of games uh, which are traditionally associated with the British judges polo and cricket and snooker. I know they polo in particular has Persian uh, heritage. But can you comment on whether those types of games were of any interest or involvement of the the royal courts? And if so, uh, was it significant? And did it have any impact? Uh, well, certainly polo. Um, was a sport of kings, and it was described as such. And uh, it, it has, of course, just an extremely fascinating history coming down as it did from Central Asia into South Asia um, and carried by the royal courts. Um, cricket was also a game that was engaged in by many um, royal families, I, I suppose it's a game to some extent of the upper class and um, the Ranji Trophy which is the internal state Indian first line competition today is named after a Maharaja uh, the Maharaja of um, help me Nawangar I think uh, anyway it was Ranji Singh Ji and uh, he became 
uh, one of India's most famous cricketers. So there were many involved in cricket. Um, but I'm glad you raised games. Uh, the Maharaja of um, Mysore, whose painting I showed there, riding on an elephant on a company painting, he uh, was better known for his support of the arts than he was for statecraft. And uh, he invented many, many games. And we have a game set up in the exhibition, which is a sort of a wooden pull-out puzzle thing, which has five or six games in it. Maybe some of you guys had these when you were younger. And, and he invented this in the, in the uh, late 1800s. Um, but one of the most fascinating things, from my point of view in the show, from the point of view of games, is how Indian games penetrated into the rest of the world. And the best example, I think, and an example that we show in the exhibition, is a game called Pachisi. Now, some of you will know, that's from Pachis, the Hindi word for 25. But when I was little, growing up in Vancouver, we called it Parcheesi. And I actually can remember the board we had. It was called Parcheesi. I, I guess that was the way it, it traveled. And was also called Ludo. And that game was copyrighted in the 1880s in North America. But we know that it was played back to 2,000 years ago in India. And that we have a beautiful painting of a Maharaja playing that uh, game in the exhibition alongside that game set. And it was a gambling game uh, in the royal courts and uh, very popular. So I don't know, has anybody ever played Parcheesi? <laughs> Parcheesi. What's the basis of their wealth? Well, <clears throat> traditionally it was a feudal structure so that... Um, the Indian kingdoms involved uh, suzerainty over large tracts of land. And on these tracts of land, there were crops being grown. There was resources uh, taking materials out of the land. And people were paying taxes and, uh, to the center, to the royal kingdom. So that was the, the major uh, source of funds. Now, um, in some cases, this was considerable. And that's because some of the kingdoms in India were as large as medium-sized European countries. And others were as small as a few miles across. So that's how you get 600 when you get to independence. Some of them were immense. Hyderabad, Mysore, Baroda. And some were tiny little kingdoms. But each one had a feudal structure in which different village heads were collecting a certain amount of the produce and rent, and it was going up the line to the, uh, to the king. And um, so that was the source of the wealth. Um, when uh, independence, when the British came, that was augmented by... Uh, grants and so forth, depending on the level of cooperation and uh, the the nature of the kingdom, and that's a that's a huge story. Actually, Doug Pierce from York University is going to come down for another lecture in this series, and he'll be talking a little bit about the financial structure of that period. But then, as some of you know, 
When uh, the kings threw their lot in, some of them with their arms twisted, uh, to the modern state of India in 1947, they were each granted a purse, a yearly stipend, depending on the size and wealth and so forth of their kingdom. And by that time, many of them were supporting thousands and thousands of people and supporting whole uh, social uh, networks, uh, certainly social services. And so some of these uh, purses were considerable. And one night in 1971, Indira Gandhi canceled them, just unilaterally cut them off. So... uh, that's a story that hasn't really been told in much detail. But, of course, it threw these erstwhile kings into a situation of total crisis because they had been operating as titular uh, heads of their regions. Uh, some of them, as I said, had entered the military. Some of them had entered politics. Uh, many of them were in business. But they were still operating their, their web of responsibilities, and all of a sudden they were gone. And uh, at that point, many had to sell off a lot of their properties and sell off a lot of their, um, their riches. And so consequently, that's a time. And actually, it started earlier than that. It started early in the 20th century, but it was accelerated at that point where things that they'd bought from Europe, from designer houses and so forth, which had been in their family for generations, started to go back. And that's why so much of the wealth and the riches of the Maharajas is today in Europe, uh, because it was sold back at that time of crisis. And what happened in Cartier's case, for example, Cartier in 1928 had created that fabulous Patiala necklace for the Patiala Raja. He had brought all the stones to France. They'd all been set. He'd taken them back. And then he was forced, of course, to resell them to the same people that he'd had make the necklaces in the first place. And the reason why so little of that great royal jewelry survives is because there was no way that these jewels set in their Indian settings had any currency in Europe. They were too big. They were too crazy. They were set in, you know, turban ornaments and so forth. And people weren't wearing those. So what happened was the Indian jewels were all taken apart by the jewelers, reset in, in single strands. For example, every single one of these great Maharajas had a famous seven-strand pearl necklace. They, almost none of them survived because as soon as they went back to Paris or London, the jewelers took them apart and sold them one strand at a time. And one strand of the famous Baroda seven-strand pearl necklace was just sold last year in Paris, maybe the last one of that great necklace. The other thing that happened, if, if I can, is that in India, as you'll notice when you see some of the great jewels in the exhibit, the fashion was... And many of these great stones were controlled by royal families and distributed as gifts and so forth. Indian uh, kings, uh, the fashion was to show a stone in all its weight. So almost all Indian stones are just bezel cut. 
They're just a rounded cut. They're not faceted. And when you look at them in the exhibit, you'll notice great uh, rubies and sapphires and diamonds that are just just a big blob, basically, uh, from a Western jewelry point of view. So when those went back into the European system, they were recut to be fashionable to Europeans. And so in the great Patiala necklace, where they had a 290-carat yellow diamond, that diamond doesn't exist anymore because when it went back to Europe, it was cut down to a third of its original size. Now it's a very small, very sparkly, single solitaire somewhere, but it doesn't retain the same allure or meaning that it had in the Indian jewelry. The, the representations of the Maharaja in the Air India mm-hmm. statue and advertisements that you, shoo, you showed um, have a striking kind of comical quality to yeah. them, almost caricatures. Right. right? And it reminds me of what you might have seen pre-partition in some of the illustrated British periodicals when, say, the Maharaja of Kashmir was being particularly brutal or in Parliament there was a particular debate around some of the policies in Kashmir. Blackwoods would have a kind of a a very caricature-like representation of the Maharaja, which, so far as I know, you didn't see in India while the Maharaja still had power. Mm -hmm. But... And in the context of, say, Air India, mm-hmm. you can see it kind of making sense where the Maharaja is made subservient to an enterprise of the new nation or the new state. Right. But was there a post-partition kind of release of vent-up resentment against the Maharajas that expressed itself in comical art or caricature? I wish I could answer that question because I think it's a really good point. That little Maharaja is, on the one hand, remembering the kind of luxury and opulence that tourists would like to think they could experience when they come to India. And on the other hand, it's, it's a little bit of a joke. I mean, he's riding on a magic carpet. That's Orientalist in the extreme. I mean, you know, I don't know. That's something that comes from the Middle East or from Arabia or somewhere, that, that idea. And the, so there it is. It's a little combination of... Um, but I don't... I don't think there was. I, I mentioned in my quotations a few of the kinds of things that national pol- nationalist politicians said about the Maharajas at the time of independence. But I think everyone was pulling together so strongly at that time to try to recreate or try to create, basically, a nation. And that was really the point, because there hadn't been really a nation up to that point. And in order to create it, I think everybody, they needed all hands on deck. And many of these maharajas were highly educated, highly experienced people in business and in supervision and management. And as I mentioned, and I could have gone on and on with the list, many of them really stepped up to the plate. So I think these notions of extravagance and waste or whatever they might have been that could have caused... um, you know, the butt of a joke was was not really very prominent at that time. But I, I do take your point about the British uh, humor magazines and so forth. There were all kinds of caricatures at the time. And I didn't go into the relationships between these maharajas and royal families, but often they were quite uh, extensive and quite bizarre. And, uh, you know, uh, Victoria... Um, 
Bhupinder Singh of Patiala, she was the godmother of his children. And she, she had, there's all kinds of quotes of her saying, his eyes, his teeth, they're so beautiful. I you know, can hardly believe it. And you know, he wore in his royal raiment a big cameo of her right on his chest. And, you know, so there, there was these uh, kind of relationships. And there was always a sense of royal... Um, I guess kind of a noblesse uh, uh, between royal families in different uh, countries who recognized each other's responsibilities and uh, uh, in a sense a mutual support society which uh, went across um, cross borders. Um, Earlier, the point, the was originally owned by the Tardis to the Nation. That's right. That's right. I don't think it was a government initiative. No, no, that's true. And of course, the Tardis were were some of the earliest real heavy marketers in India, and they knew what was going to sell. So I think you know their selection was driven by business interests, but it, it's still an interesting choice that they made. There's an enormous difference between the palaces in Rajasthan and the palaces in Gujarat. Uh, Could you comment on why you think one has been successful? I mean, notably more uh, prominent in the tourism industry and in museums and other things. One is much more prominent than the other. Mm. Well... I, I, I can only answer that. I, I don't really know the answer to the question, but here's my take on it. Rajasthan, the land of the kings, uh, fit into this picture very, very handily. And there were great palaces. And they had a terrific amount of leadership there as well. The, the Maharajas of the various Rajasthani kingdoms really stepped up and saw the potential. And despite the lack of support that they originally received, they managed to foresee how that they could turn what were often empty, moldering buildings into uh, hotels and other kinds of uh, visitor experiences. I don't think the same has taken place in other parts of India. I mean, there are palaces that are serving as hotels now, in, uh, in many parts of India, but they're of varying success, I think, compared to Rajasthan. And I'll give you one example. The young man who I showed you the photograph of, who uh, is the Nawab of Rampur, who was the, has the architectural degree, uh, when I, I went and did a little job for him in his uh, kingdom, uh, in the in the library, which has a fabulous collection of paintings and so forth as well. And uh, he said to me one day, oh, would you like to see the palace? I was staying in his bungalow, which his family still maintains a nice bungalow on a quiet, leafy street. And I said, sure, are you going to take me and show me? And he said, no, I, I can't go there. And I said, why, why wouldn't you go there? And he said, well, I was born there. And he said, it breaks my heart now to look at it. I, I can't go. So he put me in a rickshaw and told the rickshaw man, take him there. So he took me there, 
And it was as big as that one that I showed you, Baroda. I mean, you, you couldn't get a photograph of it. You couldn't get back far enough to get the whole thing in the lens. You know, it was just an enormous palace. And it had been taken over by the government of India, and they'd set up a hotel. But, you know, when you went, the guy was asleep at the table, and there was really nothing happening there. And everything was just dripping down off the walls. The oil paintings in the main Durbar Hall were all rolling out of their frames. And it was clear that it was going to die of neglect. So, I mean, not all these stories are happy ones from the point of view of even tourism. Um, much of it had to be left behind because it just didn't fit into the modern political reality of India. I wouldn't mind asking you a little bit about the process. I have to say Stephen has been incredibly generous in his work with the AGO. Um, tell us some of the stories. Where you, I mean, This show is slightly different from the v show. It's got different content. What are some of the interesting experiences you've had working on this exhibition? Um, well, I, I think the, the wonderful thing about something like this is it comes out of a British museum. Uh, they, they initiated the project. Um, I think probably about 60% of the artifacts come from the Victoria and Albert Museum, which is one of the largest, along with the British Museum and the British Library, probably have the largest collection of this kind of material in the world. And um, a lot of scholarship and so forth applied to it as well. But there's still so much to learn and still so much to do. And so this exhibit was an example of not only installing but also doing research. And one of the really, well, maybe I'll just even go back to it if I could. One of the interesting things we did, I'm going to, this is a wonderful painting. This is a treasure, uh, and it's, um, it's the length of this wall. And it's got about 1,500 individual figures painted in it. And it came to us as, it, actually it was mislabeled in the VNA for years and years as the Maharaj of Tanjore, which is a, a state in Tamil Nadu further south. But uh, they uh, learned at some point that it, it was really the Maharaja of Mysore. And it's Krishna Raja Vodiyar II. And how do we know that? Well, we began to do a little bit of research on this painting. It had a one-paragraph label in the V&A, and that paragraph just said, Mysore, da-da-da, and that was that. But there's 1,500 figures in here, and they're all doing something different. And so when we brought it here, we thought, we can't do that. And I was watching people in the V&A, and they went up to this painting, and there was only a label at one end. So... They just walked by it. There was no way of getting into this painting, no way of knowing what was going on. And so um, one of the things that we did, which was for me a lot of fun, was I got in touch with a number of colleagues who work in South India and who worked in Mysore and so forth, and we began to look at this painting in detail. And what we found was just, to us, really stunning because there's everything going on here. And there's people from all over India in this painting who gathered at this great festival, which still goes on in Mysore every year, 
it's a, it's a festival of the worship of, of a form of Durga, and it takes place in the fall during the Dasara or Navaratri. And um, there's people that have come from all over the place. There's people from all different castes and um, parts of society. And um, we were able to identify through going through historical photographs who that British residence was. And we, we, we didn't know until we got really close to this painting and we noticed that the Raja had gray on the ends of his mustache. The, the date that the V&A had for it, he would have only been 25. But I don't think that could be a 25-year-old man unless his mustache was graying early or something like that. Mine didn't start to gray till later on. So um, anyway, it, it's just an example of, of fashion, of different kinds of clothing, of different types of events that are taking place. Um, there's all the different military regiments. This is a regiment behind Cubbon here, um, which was a famous regiment, which was called Silidar's Horse. It went on be- to become the Mysore Lancers. They actually fought in the First World War in Egypt. So, you know, there's a whole story within a story um, that came out with this painting. So we did another label, which you can actually see online on the AGO site, and you can just go across with your cursor. And, um, you know, I, I've been delighted because I've seen people in the exhibit just, we put little stools in front of it because people just wanted to spend time there. And they went along and they looked at every piece. So it's just that it's never really over. There's always something to be done, even with historical objects and even great ones from great museums. Another thing we did, which I considered a lot of fun, was we looked in Canadian collections, and we brought that wonderful howdah with the elephant blanket from Calgary. We brought that gate that I showed you from the Royal Ontario Museum. We also brought the Nizam of Hyderabad's jeweled slippers from the Bata Shoe Museum, <laughs> which are there in the show. And I particularly like that because the Nizam, reputedly, the one at the turn of the century, who was considered the richest man in the world at the time, used to keep I mean, how do I know? But the story is, he used to keep big gems in the toes of his slippers. <laughs> so every time I look at those slippers and you see the big toes, they're curling up at the front, they're really big. Um, you can think about the gems, the great gems. And he had one of the largest collections of gems in the world. And luckily for the state of India, a portion of his collection survives and is, is in a bank vault in, uh, in Mumbai and was purchased by the government of India with a very far-sighted view towards preserving some of the legacy of the great gems of, uh, of India. Um, what else did we bring? We brought... Well, the Rolls-Royce was an addition here. The Rolls-Royce yeah. was an addition. They had a Rolls-Royce in London, a green one, which looked kind of military to me. So when we found a saffron one, we thought, whoa, this is going to be something else. And, um, not that we were in competition. <laughs> not that we were in competition. But what was very fortunate about bringing the Star of India, as it's called, this Rolls-Royce, one of the world's greatest cars, was that we got the family that I showed you tonight along with it. Because 
when we knew we, we had to go through them to get the car. They were going to ship it back from London directly to India. We asked them, could you please bring it to Toronto? They didn't know anything about Toronto. So it was a, you know, it's one of those things, and you get the director of the AGO to write a personal letter to the Maharaja and, you know, do all that kind of thing. And uh, then we invited them to come and sent them to Niagara Falls and up in the Space Needle. Or, you know, <laughs> sorry. And, uh, you know, and so, and the Eaton Center. And uh, so they were happy, we were happy, and... Uh, we had that great piece. And, of course, we were very fortunate with Cartier because they hadn't loaned their great pieces to the V&A. I don't know why. They might not have been available that time. And exclusively, they loaned us the Patiala necklace and uh, an emerald in there that will just knock you out. It's a belt buckle. It's one of the biggest emeralds that exists. It's, it's from about 500 years ago. It's all carved on both sides with petals on the front and leaves on the back and uh, it was also in the Patiala collection. It, it, it was really uh, a great adventure uh, to go through that. Well, if there are no more questions, I would like to thank you so much, especially he flew today from Montreal and was quite delayed, so thank you so much, not just for this talk, but for all your hard work and good humor throughout the whole thing for the show. Please do look. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.